the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 507 for Sunday, June 22nd, 2014. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We bring our own questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We try not to ask too many of our questions without giving answers. We try to answer your questions. We share your tips and occasionally we share the cool stuff found. And the goal is for us all to learn many new things. Each time we get together here every week, this episode is sponsored in part by Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. The coupon code MGG gets you 10% off. And we've got a special little promotion that uh, might get your website promoted. That we'll tell you about uh, shortly here. This show is also sponsored by E3 software with direct mail Mac. Uh, and we'll tell you more about that during the show too at directmailmac.com. All right. And here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Brown. And here in another part of Durham is Pilot Pete. A slightly different part of Durham. Yeah. Two or three feet away from Dave. Yeah. How is the weather over there, Pete? It's not bad. Nice, that's, cool, that's good. sunny, yeah. beautiful. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to, have the, uh, nice to have the band back together here. It's nice having you here, Pete. Nice to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. It's yeah. nice being had. It is. It is. All right. Uh, let's get this show on the road. David, take it away. Hey, John. Dave, this is David from Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, with a question for you. I am installing uh, solar panels on our roof in our house, and to get the monitoring of my production and consumption, um, I was thinking of using a power line adapter to relay that information from my roof into my router, which resides in my laundry room. The only problem is, is my laundry room receptacles are all GFCI, and apparently a power line adapter has difficulty communicating with a GFCI grounded uh, outlet. So I don't know if you knew of any adapters that work with that and could kind of elaborate as to what happens there with the technology as to why it does not work with uh, such an outlet. Uh, appreciate your thoughts and comments. Um, the alternative is to, you know, run a, a wireless bridge router up in the attic, but then every time the router hangs up or, or needs to be reset, you got to go and climb up in the attic and wiggle your way all the way back corner and, and manually reset the power to cycle to do that. So I'm trying to avoid that. So would appreciate your thoughts. Um, and if I may, uh, a little shameless self-promotion, uh, you can always follow me at Main Street Apple. And I'm always uh, tweeting and talking and blogging about all things uh, Apple as well. So it's Twitter at Main Street Apple. Appreciate that. And uh, you guys have a great day. Okay, cop. <laughs> Thanks, David. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely. Uh, it, and there you go with your shameless self-promotion. So you're right. There are certain power line adapters, probably more than others, uh, that are negatively impacted by GFCI outlets. Which and it, is? Uh, well, I, it, let me let me back up here because power line, for those of you that don't know, uh, we've talked about it many times on the show, but it's been a little while. Powerline is essentially Ethernet over your power lines. You buy two adapters, at least two adapters, uh, and plug them into your outlets on the wall, and they have Ethernet ports on them. 
and you plug Ethernet in and pretty much that's it. Just like magic, uh, you get an Ethernet connection between wherever those two devices are. It's an awesome way to create a bridge or what uh, what David's talking about here, except if you have a ground fault circuit interrupter, uh, th- that's the thing that you have to put in your bathrooms and things like that. Anywhere you've got an outlet near water, uh, you, you have to, I think it's within what, uh, six feet of water, three feet of water. It depends think, on the yeah. building code. But I, when if, I did my basement, I did it too, because it's down in the, you know, below ground. It's below ground. Yeah. Right. So you're right. You, you have to have these things. And it's the, the, the problem is not even necessarily if, you're plugging directly into a GFCI outlet, but if you even just have a GFCI outlet anywhere on that circuit, because that's how they work. Um, little aside, if you're doing a building project or anything and you want to put three outlets in your bathroom, typically only one of them needs to have a GFCI on it because that will protect everything down the everything line in series. There, that's yep. right. So, uh, so it also creates that filter potentially uh, for power line stuff. So, you have a couple of options. Number one is what you said, put a router in the, uh, in the attic. You may have heat problems with that too. So in addition to all the normal things where, you know, having a router that is difficult to touch, uh, this one may present more problems because, uh, I, I don't, again, I don't know. Uh, you said you're in North Carolina, so you have heat problems in the summer. Uh, yeah. certainly, uh, in, in your attic. Right. So, uh, could you run an Ethernet cable, you know, down through the siding of the house or something, right? You know, get get um, they call it direct burial cable. It you wouldn't be burying it, but it it's built to withstand the elements quite yeah, well. Instead of through the wall, but under the siding. Yeah, that's what I wound up doing with some cable, some coax. Yeah, so you can do that if you have coax. That's the other way to go. Is is you can do Ethernet over coax with the MOCA, the Mocha. Uh, technology, but again, whether you have coax in your attic and your laundry room, you may, because that may be, maybe that's where that stuff comes in. And if you have coax, you can do the ethernet over coax thing. Um, but, but really that's, that's it. Or could you get an ethernet cable down to, you know, from your laundry room to somewhere that's not on a GFCI circuit? That would, I mean, that would be the other way. And another suggestion I would have would be some way to get, an extra line in there, you know, if you're going to run lines, then, then kind of get in there before the GFCI picks up. Right. So GFCI will still pick up in series from where that outlet is and down beyond it. Yep. But if you can plug that ethernet and possibly even hardwire it in to that electric line. Oh yeah. I'm trying to think of a way to do that. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't come to mind easily. Yeah, you got to use power line cause you got to separate High, low voltage. From yeah, high and voltage. it's got the plug. I realize that. I'm just trying to think. If there's a way, and there's not a simple way to do that. Right. No, but there's not. Try and get in front of that. But you know, the thing is, I'm pretty sure I'm using mine on a GFCI circuit. So has he tried it and it, failed? That's well, the question. It, it, it may not work as well, but how much data is he trying to send? Yeah, it, it's. Um, you, you may need to try a different brand of of yeah. power line adapters, which, which you're using net gears, right? I am. Yep. Yeah. And I've had good luck with the net gears too. Although I know that I am not running them on any GFCIs. So I think my whole basement is, and that's what I'm running my sling box off of. And, okay. it, and, it's, and so I think it's working. John, any thoughts from you? No, I, I, I don't, I don't even know if I have any GFCIs. I probably do. You would have to in your kitchen and, and things like that. Oh, all right. Yeah. I've, uh, Never explored, and I don't have power line at this moment. Though if I put, though the places I'd want to put power line, I, I think probably won't have them. So you're saying that they're they're 
Yeah, I was I was looking quickly. Yeah, yeah. when I asked you before, I was like, well, what, what what does this acronym mean? And uh, yeah, I guess as you point out, I guess it's it's by regulation. Uh, you you've got to have them. You've those outlets where you've got the the test and reset button in the middle of the outlet. That's oh. a GFCI. Oh, there we go. Okay, well I have one. Yeah, so like in the yeah, I think the only place I have them are yeah in the bathrooms. Right, and you yeah, might have one in the kitchen reset. if it's within arm's reach of the sink is essentially the the rule oh. of thumb, if you will. Oh, so yeah. that's how you tell. Yeah. Okay, and I guess it uh yeah prevents a, a short from lasting it yeah. doesn't prevent it from happening yeah, it, it detects, prevents it from lasting ground and kill and, and kill circuit breaker. so yeah. so if you have one of those you couldn't do the old uh you know uh, uh throwing the toaster in the bathtub kind of way of uh i'm sorry you could, <laughs> you could but it wouldn't work well it would work <laughs> right. for a very short period of time yeah, just enough to sting <laughs> yeah that's right okay wow let me grab the reins here uh john why, why don't you uh oh, take yeah. us to uh alley if I'm going to take please. you to Alley. I learned something new with this one. And I love it. And I have a fish shake. <laughs> Even better. Bag. All right. So Ali or Ali, Ali. Um, I know that mail and messages in OS X Mavericks support data detectors, and you can create a calendar event based on the data selected. I was wondering if there's a way to do this whenever a date appears in Safari. This would be extremely helpful, but I am sure there's a way to do this using Apple Scripts but I wouldn't know where to start. I've looked online, but can't seem to find an article that would help me. Well, we are going to help you. And I got not one, but two little tidbits here, Dave, from one that I did not know about. So data detectors, there's a swell article that Apple had written where I learned something new and it's called OS 10 Mavericks detect dates, contacts, and more in documents. How do you do this? You ask, well, I'm going to tell you, how do you do I, this? I never saw this before. In many applications, and you're going to guess which one it doesn't work in, yeah. in many applications, uh, for example, text edit I have open right now, if you go to the edit menu and then go to substitutions, you're going to see a list of things you can do. And one of them is data detectors. And I think typically it's unchecked by default. So, All right. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. How about uh, now? Guess Allie's. what application? Guess what application doesn't have this, Dave? Yeah, Safari. So if you go to Safari and you go to the edit menu and you go to substitutions, there is no choice for data detectors. Why is this? I don't know. But there is a sneaky way that you can do this, and this is actually an article that goes way, way back. But it still works in- now with with uh, with Mavericks. Absolutely awesome. Yes. So the tricky way to do this, what you want to do, all right, so, so the bottom line is that data detectors do not work, currently work in Safari, and I found no way to trick it. There's no P list or anything. However, what you can do is kind of a sneaky uh, workaround is that if you have a web page and you would like to apply the data detectors to it, you hold down Command-I. And what that does is emails the page to you. Or it sends it to you in mail in which uh, data detectors do work. And I was like, command I, that's kind of weird. What is command I? Well, command I actually in Safari is the same thing as if you go to the file menu and share and say email this page. Uh, Oh, interesting. That's a good little hack. 
important safety tip don't hold the eye down for long or you get many many <laughs> send yourself lots of emails lots of emails thanks Pete. Up. <laughs> yeah just tried it so it's really kind of frustrating because I can see how having data detectors in uh, in Safari would be useful for you know addresses and scheduling things and all that, but I I, I don't it, I don't know if that's something you can do in other browsers and I mean I, I why can't you do it in Safari? Just just seems really well. Can you do it in other browsers? I don't think you can. I think it's only certain Apple apps have been blessed with the ability to do data detectors. Right. I'm just thinking that there's that you know the the first thing we talked about where. Um, you know, you can go. You can go uh, uh, to the substitutions, edit substitutions. They turn on data detectors. I'm wondering if if other browser vendors, uh, I haven't looked, uh, allow it. I don't think. Can you have data detectors? And, and now my my knowledge of iOS and OS 10 and the restrictions are clearly getting confused. So I I may be wrong about this, and I don't want you folks to uh, take this to heart yet. But I'm speculating. Is it even possible to add data detectors to third-party apps on the Mac? I, I, I guess it is. It's, it, you can't on iOS, or you can't add new data detectors, right? Um, Firefox doesn't appear to have it. Not, yeah. I don't think you can, right? I mean, this is like... Not, not you have to, safely. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I'll tell you, I actually looked at this one point, so if you dig into the Ooh. system... Uh, you can actually find there actually is a plist file that defines uh, the format of the data the data detectors will detect. In theory, you could go in there and make your own. Uh, the, the, to me, that's advanced geekery. Yeah, yeah. I guess can you though? I mean, you know, is is that one of those things you can do? Well, I just I, well, I just hit detect in uh, put detect in the help window for Firefox, and it came up with the help center and it says many OS ten apps. Can automatically detect data such as states, locations, phone numbers, etc. Um, uh, do any of the following: enable automatic detection, turn on, uh, uh, choose edit substitutions, data detectors. But it's not it's not an option in Firefox. I imagine it's not there in Chrome either. Yeah. Um, so it looks like some of the sandboxing is kicking in. To- yeah. Right. 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 Have you have you have you messed with it, John? Have you gotten it to work in other apps? Uh, not non. Apple apps, the only one. Yeah, I think I, I, I've tried it in uh, Stickies, uh, Notes, I think it works, and um, Text Edit. But no, I, I haven't seen it. I, I was just speculating because the article says OS ten apps. It, it doesn't say Apple OS ten apps. So I'm wondering if it's technically possible. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, well, there we go. That's, uh, that's as far as that one's going to go, I think. All right. Uh, another one that is you know it, it we're getting into tis the season uh realm here of heat and all the other fun stuff uh so richard has uh, a great suggestion he said uh he said that uh well all right he would he i'm trying to encapsulate this for us here sorry he sent us a note and we were talking about his machine overheating and uh, he said he was getting weird uh, things happening on the screen. And it, he showed us some pictures and it was like, yeah, that that's typically a graphics chip overheating. And uh, I, I, you know, my, my suggestion was the only fix for that is a replacement motherboard, take it in the genius bar and see what they say. And he, he wrote back a couple of days later, actually a couple of weeks later. And he says, so 
instead of taking it to the genius bar where I knew they would tell me I needed a new motherboard. Uh, I took the back off of my MacBook and I blew it out real good with an air compressor and I seemed to have fixed it. And he, he said it was pretty dusty and dirty in there. And, uh, and he blew all the dust off. Dust is a killer insulator. It's such a good insulator. Uh, and of course, you don't want to insulate your graphics chip or your CPU uh, in that way. They don't need a nice snuggly blanket around them. Uh, they will generate enough heat on their own. And in fact, the idea is to get it off of them. So by blowing the dust out on his on his older machine, uh, and it wasn't that much older. It's a 2011, early 2011. So it's three years old. But again, depending on environments and how you use it, can collect some dust. So uh, great advice, Richard. Thank you. Can I offer a safety tip, please? Yes. <laughs> uh much like, uh, oh, I don't know if you were kids, you ever seen somebody take a can of Lysol and a lot of lighter and, you know, shoot flame out for several feet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that air is also uh, flammable. So oh. make sure you're completely unplugged and cooled off when you do it, depending on the amount of heat. Uh, yeah, yeah. it's blowing out my, uh, my theater projector. Mm. <laughs> it managed to shoot flame about three feet really? across the room. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So don't blow it on the hot chip. Let no. the chip be let the nice chip and cool. cool. Let it be off and all that stuff. Yeah, don't just blow it in there when the machine's on and running, oh. uh, lest lest you uh, find yourself with more fire than you really wanted to start off with. Wow. Probably an unlikely occurrence, but but a safety tip just to, <laughs> yeah. just to be sure. Wow. I was so. going to offer something that's kind of on the other end of the spectrum, is that you don't want to get too close with those compressed air things, because compressed air is typically very cold. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've seen this when I've blown contra- compressed air on some things, you may actually see frost um, develop. So, so yeah, don't, don't get too close either because Super you may cool it fast. Yeah. 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 You may freeze it and break it. Huh? Yeah. So, uh, well, and the other thing I've seen, and I think we, we've all seen, um, don't smoke around your, don't smoke indoors or don't smoke in the same room. you you have a computer because that acts as an extra yeah. special way uh because the nicotine and all the other garbage in, in the smoke is going to attract and help the dust uh, adhere. So, uh, right. <laughs> don't smoke. It's bad for you. Yeah. And, and you're I've bad for that, your computer. I, I, I mean, you can tell. I mean, when I've worked on some machines, you can tell if it's from a smoker. I mean, first you can smell it, but then you, you see it's just there's way more dust than normally develop in there. Yeah. Interesting. That's fascinating. I, you know, I always worry about blowing the dust off of things because... Um, it, it, it moving dust can cause, um, static electricity, right? And so that can, I've seen it, um, not so much with the compressed air, but even just, you know, when we used to work on old machines and we had clients that were in, you know, the construction business or whatever, where they were just, we had a lot of clients actually in Austin that were in the sand and loam business. So there was no avoiding dust, um, and and we've actually fried a motherboard with them simply by taking the, the case off the, the computer. This was an old Windows tower or whatever. But just moving that much dust around in there caused enough static electricity that it, um, wow. it fried their motherboard. Yeah. yeah, it can happen, right? So just got to be careful. And, I, I, you know, I'm the only one on the planet that actually uh, has the ability to blow uh, completely moisture-free air from my from my mouth. Right. So I don't have to use compressed air. I I just go in and I just blow it right out. But I don't recommend that to anyone else. I really do recommend uh, going and buying those cans of air where every time you you press the button, you're just spraying pennies out. But um, and Furby's in the chat room points out that iFixit has uh, ESD safe brushes. 
Uh-huh. So, yeah. Yeah. You're, and, and Furby's in the chat room at MacGeekab.com slash stream. Good morning. Uh, nice to have you folks here in the morning. He said, uh, you, I should have grounded that computer first. I, I want to say that it was, it was, well, the, the power supply was grounded, which may have been the problem. Um, it's okay. It's a windows machine. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So anyway, thank you, Richard. I, I did want to talk about our first sponsor, which is Squarespace and Squarespace is at squarespace.com slash MGG is the place to go. If you have a website you want to build and it's so, so easy, these guys really, I mean, you're literally opening up a web browser and you're, you're, you're already going, you pick a template. Uh, they have beautiful looking templates and it, it just works great. Uh, you can drag images in, you drag your own images in, you can, uh, configure different kinds of pages. You can have, you know, an about page and a contact page. You can move things all around. You can set up a little blog inside there. They have engines for that. They will import your stuff. If you've been messing around with like a WordPress blog, but you don't want to have to worry about how the hosting works in con- conjunction with how you design it. Well, Squarespace does all of that and they'll import your data from your old WordPress blog. So you don't even have to use your, your stuff. And in fact, that's what I did. I moved my whole DaveTheNerd.com page, which I post to infrequently sometimes, uh, but I moved that over to Squarespace and it sucked in years worth of blog posts from WordPress. And it was no problem. I just did it. It took a little while because there's a lot of data, but, uh, but it just pulled it right in. It was no problem. So here's the thing. If you create your own page with Squarespace, right? And, and you get to sign up, use the coupon code MGG. And here's the thing. You'll... You go online and start building your page and then you really don't, you have two weeks free to get it all designed and figured out. And then when you're ready to go live, that's when you pay. And it's about eight bucks a month. Coupon code MGG will get you 10% off. And then once you've published your page and it's out there for all to see, we want other listeners to see your page, right? So even if you've already got one, if you're hosting with Squarespace and you're a brand new customer or you're an existing customer, uh, tweet to us that you've, created a page and use the hashtag Squarespace shout out. That's the one they've asked us to use Squarespace shout out. And, uh, and then we will, we'll tweet that back out. So make sure you tweet it to us at twitter.com slash, you know, Mac geek at Mac geek on Twitter. And, uh, and we'll tweet it back out and we'll pimp your page for you. So, uh, so there you go. Squarespace.com slash MGG with coupon code MGG. And, uh, and once you are live or if you are already live, just do it right now and tell us, um, at Mac Geek Hub, what your web page is. You got to send us the URL because otherwise we don't, you know, we don't know what the page is, but it's uh, at Mac Geek Hub on Twitter and then Squarespace shout out is the hashtag to use. So thanks to everybody that's using that. And thanks to Squarespace for being uh, an awesome long-term sponsor here. All right, John, moving on. Leon asks the million dollar question or, or maybe the, the, $120 question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he says, Hey, John and Dave, I just got my Drobo five N and I got it bare naked with no drives in this segment. Yeah. It, it, he was talking about uh show. Uh, I forget. He sent it with the Mac geek for iOS app, but I cut off when I replied to him, I cut off which show it was, but it doesn't matter. Uh, he says, you mentioned uh, you have both your movies and TV shows on your NAS. He says, I'll be using Plex media server on the five N, which works great over there. 
and wanted to know which drive manufacturer you both are using and what RPMs. He says, I am geek tweaking my NAS experience. He goes through all the stuff that he has. Uh, and he says he, uh, he wants to, you know, he wants to know what drives we use. So here's the thing. Um, you know, I've been using NAS drives for a long time. The first one I got was the Drobo FS years and years ago. Um, and that really kind of got my feet wet into it. And then, you know, we've got the, uh, Synology and now even the 5N, uh, here. And I, the 5N actually, I've, I've really, I've, I've be, I'm becoming enamored with it. It's simplicity. It's, it's, it's not overly tweakable in a, in a straightforward way, but man, for what you're doing, Leon, it's good. It's great. In fact. So, uh, but when I started, I went to uh, Drobo's website because they were the, the ones that were making this thing and, and read what, what should I put in here? And at the time, these green drives were the, all the rage and green drives ran slow, you know, whatever they were like 5,400. Some of them I think were even like 4,900 RPM or something, but they ran slow. Um, but that's okay because if you've got five drives running, you can still pull a lot of data, right? The way that these NAS drives work with, you know, a RAID 5-ish, right? A striped RAID scenario. You're not just reading data from one drive at a time. You're reading data from all the drives at a time. And so you have the ability to really pull a ton of data off it pretty quickly. And that's sort of the benefit of striping is speed. So even with, and, and, you know, now I'll fast forward to, you know, the Synology unit that I have, which has five drives in it. And it, uh, let's say it has, I've tested it with five green drives. I'll get there with five of these green drives. Um, I could still soak my, my gigabit ethernet channel. So it was for writing and reading. So it was no problem speed wise. However, things have changed since then specifically with Drobo. Um, but it's, but everywhere, uh, these green drives, when they have a, a, uh, a failure, it, it, just like a bad block, when they find a bad block, and this happens on spinning hard drives all the time, uh, they have to go into a recovery mode where they remap that block so that whatever data was going to be stored there is now going to be stored somewhere else. And, and it takes a little bit of time. The green drives tend to take a lot of time and therefore report failures or the, the drive or the, the enclosure, the, the Drobo or the Synology will report a failure saying, Oh, you know, I, I went to write or read from this drive and uh, it went offline and didn't come back for longer than I was willing to let it. And the green drives tend to be worse about that. And with drobe with, with the Synology, it just tells you this happened and then it just sort of goes on its merry way and it doesn't care if it keeps happening, whatever, it's just going to keep telling you. And that's that with Drobo. If this happens more than some number of times, I think it's three, maybe it's five with the same drive, the Drobo stores that drive serial number in its blacklist and yeah, says done forever. that drive in this unit yeah. is done forever. I don't care if you reformat it. I don't care if you go and block out all the bad blocks. It doesn't matter. This unit will never work in this enclosure again. And it's frustrating, right? But I, you know, understandable, right? You have to understand Drobo's whole mission is to, you know, they, they're kind of like Apple and they, they, they set up the box. And if you live in their box, everything works great. So, um, and Synology, this happens too. uh, you know, it, it, but they're a little more tolerant about it, but I've had these green drives die a lot. Typically I've just replaced them with more green drives because green drives are cheap, but I know in my heart of hearts that red drives, which are the drives built for NAS units are the way to go. 
Um, so that's actually, I just had to replace a drive. I had a, uh, a three terabyte drive die. It didn't die, but it was reporting a lot, not just these kind of errors, but, but read errors and, and a lot of smart errors. It would not pass a smart test anymore. So, uh, so I replaced it with a four terabyte drive, uh, because in my, in the Synology units, you have to replace drives with, you can have different size drives in there, which is awesome. But you have to replace, when you replace a drive, you have to replace it with a drive that is at least as big as your largest drive. So, um, so I replaced my three terabyte with a four terabyte because I have another four terabyte in there, which was fine. And I paid about 30 bucks more for the red drive than I would have for the green drive. And I'm not convinced I'll see any significant performance benefits out of it. Maybe I will. But again, I was already soaking up a gigabit pipe, so, you know, uh, not sure it matters. But anyway, it's, you know, it's fine, and I'm, I'm sort of over it, except now that Leon brought it up. It's like, oh, yeah, I spent an extra 40 bucks. But it's the right 40 bucks to spend is, is, is really the answer. And I'm, I'm being overly dramatic here. It's, um, it's great. You just got to kind of ignore that those green drives are right there tempting you. Buy me, buy me. You know, you can't. You got you to gotta buy the, uh, the, the red drive. So there you go. That, that's my advice. How about you, John? I just learned something. Mm. That was great because when I got the Drobo, I did like I think a lot of people do. I'm like, oh, because, you know, it's a uh, can accept pretty much any drive. I'm just going to take a whole bunch of drives and just all throw them in there and just let it do its thing. And then I had one drive that went red and I was wondering what exactly happened when you say it now, went you red explained it to me it, the, it, the light on the drobo yeah. turned red and i got a notification saying dude this drive's shot you got to pull it out of there and i'm like is it really because i mean i heard it spinning and yeah. i actually put used a uh one of those uh drive adapters newer drive adapters and i mounted the drive and i was able to read and write from it but sure. uh, apparently it had sent to failure one too many times and the drobo doing the right thing says nope unreliable yep that's it. Um, and you, but you can use it. This is the benefit of, 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 it's good to be Dave, right? It's good to be John. Um, it, and, and, it's and good to listen to Dave and John. It is. And we live the charmed life. And, and part of that charmed life sometimes means having an extra NAS unit laying around. And so when one NAS unit says, ne'er shall that drive ever be used in me again, you say, ha ha, I can beat your system. And you take it and you put it in another NAS drive until the time that that second drive or NAS unit says, ha ha, this drive sucks. I'm not going to let it use. And then you wind up bouncing around and then you wind up with this thing where you've got this drive, like, okay, well, which unit can't I put it in? Which can I put it in? And if you're ever in the situation where you're asking yourself that there's two things going on. Number one, you're very fortunate because you have a lot of NAS enclosures and that's a good thing. Um, and number two, throw the drive away and buy a red one. <laughs> That's that's the lesson I finally had to learn after, you know, I've got a drobo at Pete's house and passing that thing around. And it, it started driving us both crazy because I had drives failing left and right in there. Oh, so. yeah. All, you know, they'd go years and then all of a sudden they started failing. It was nuts. Yeah, yeah. right. It, right. It was all of them failing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Anyway. I think, though, to answer one of the other. Uh, yeah. So my observation with the drobo, I, I think I have mostly WDs in here. OK. Um I mean, the other question that was presented is, you know, as far as RPMs and stuff like that, and I actually looked and, and pasted in our uh, room here, uh, both vendors have suggestions on, um, you know, different drive types to use. Uh, I think in general, the suggestion is you should probably, for optimal performance, you probably don't want to mix different RPM speeds. See, again, I'm that's not... what Drobo says. Yeah. Drobo claims you, you probably don't want to do that. I mean, it'll work, 
but but it may be non-optimal. I'm sure it's non-optimal. Again, you know, even with my Frankenstein of of drives that I still have, I mean, again, it's my my Synology, which is sort of the main NAS. Um, but again, the, the five N, I'm sort of it's coming up for me. But um, my my Synology is still a Frankenstein of all different speed drives, and and I can soak up my Ethernet pipe. So what's the where's the downside, right? You know, I'm sure it's non-optimal and I could, I've got four ethernet ports on that thing and I could, I can bond them all together into uh what is that thing with ethernet called link aggregation. And, uh, and, and, and then all, my, you know, I could have four computers potentially getting gigabit if the unit could support it. And that's maybe where I would see the, the benefit of, of doing it the right way. So, yeah no i yeah. did so i did like you um i couldn't resist so so currently i have two um uh so i have the two base analogy um right originally i started off with two of the uh and i think you recommended them to me two of the uh two terabyte uh wd green drives yeah it was great for a while yeah and then all of a sudden one day i got a notification from the uh, synology and it's like um yeah i, I found an io error on this one drive and it just reported it. Yeah. It was still working, but, but it was like, hmm, that, that's, that's not so good. And then I think I even did a smart diagnostic. Yeah. Um, and it reported uh, several low-level failures. Um, and to WD's credit, it was under warranty. Went to their system. They said, uh, yep, what's the problem? And I'm like, you know, smart's reporting uh, imminent failure. And uh, shipped it to them. They shipped it back. I, I think I had to pay for the shipping. Uh and I actually got a 2.5 terabyte drive back. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went through a warranty process with Seagate on the, the green drives that I have, the three terabytes. Uh, I went through it once. They all started dying right before the warranty was up, which was really convenient. Sweet. And so I swapped all three of them out. They goofed it. It's supposed to happen right after. The I, know, I know. I know. I <laughs> know. They thought they were going to sit on the shelf a little bit longer. Right. But um but it, it, they did, but now it's, you know, it's, I'm past that. Once you warranty it once, they don't, the warranty doesn't reset, Yeah, <laughs> which would be nice, but, you know. Here's a new drive with a 12 day warranty. Yeah. That's basically <laughs> what it was. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I think they gave me 90 oh. and I did have one of those fail. Oh, wow. And they replaced it. Um, and it was right at like 90, it might've even been 92. Uh, and they were, Seagate was good about it. Yeah. They, their drive manufacturers are good about this stuff, but within reason, you, you know, I felt like that 92, if they had said, listen, dude, you know, we did this once for you. Um, I wouldn't yeah. have felt too bad. Let me ask you a question. Do you, yeah. John and Dave, both, do you guys find that, uh, you have one brand of drive that is better, more reliable, be it Seagate, Western digital, Hitachi, something like that, or, you know, I'm only using, uh, rotational drives nowadays, in my NAS units. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I've, I've had Seagate drives, the green drives fail, but not at a rate that I would consider not buying them again. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I, um, my guess is they're all made by the same Malaysian family. Right. I mean, probably so. Yeah. Right there. Uh, in Penang and yeah, and that, but, I don't uh, know. Um, but, but, you know, so no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, get, I think the most important thing is buy a drive that has a decent warranty. Yeah. What um, about you, John? You got anything? To uh, you know, I got a mix. So in my Synology, I have two WD greens. They, they've been fine except for, you know, the one that, that started to raise a flag and they replaced it. I think in my Drobo, I got a mix of, uh, 
I think I got a Hitachi. I got some WDs. And then in my uh, MacBook Pro, I got uh, one of the uh, Seagate. And I think in my Mini, I got a Toshiba uh, two and a half inch drive. So I, uh, the quick answer is no. I have, I have not noticed any particular drive being okay. much better, much worse. You, you just got to, you know, they, they're doing a better job now of, you know, helping qualify the drives, like enterprise drives. Like, okay, you know, I think they you know, slightly higher quality, you know, they're higher quality and they're, they're meant to, you know, be beat sure. on more under different conditions. But, um, no, I, I, you know, as long as it's a major brand, <laughs> like all the ones I mentioned, those are all the ones that I've used and IBM, uh, drives I've used in the past. So. Okay. I just remember it was a few years ago. It used to be, uh, you could buy like, I think it was Seagate. I may be bad mouthing them, but if you go to Best Buy, you buy a Seagate and then you try to put, you know, something on there and they go, Oh no, that's a copy protected file. You know, you can't do that. They go, really? Yeah. So that drove me away. I think it was from Seagate for a while, but it wasn't because of reliability. I haven't been able to nail that down. So I was just wondering, you guys have obviously more experience with a lot of spinning drives. Yeah. I, they're all the same yeah. to me. I mean, yeah. again, from that, from that upper echelon from reliability. Yeah. Standpoint, sure. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, Let's go into let's go into Bill here. Bill Bill has a question that sort of spiraled into two questions, and uh, so it, it started with Bill saying, um, "I should have partitioned my two terabyte drive in my time capsule before I ran out of space, but Time Machine has taken it over. I have other folders on the drive that I cannot currently access. Maybe I need to kiss them goodbye." When I saw that the time machine was at capacity, I researched forums and knowledge base articles, and there were a few things I tried. Uh, I tried using sparse image compactor, which didn't seem to work. It sometimes will, uh, but it doesn't in all cases. He says, I tried adding a line of code uh, or doing a terminal command that uh, compacts the drive. Essentially, it does the same thing that sparse image compactor does, and that didn't work either. Um, and he said, so I, I'm curious, what should I do here? Uh, to, you know, alleviate space. How do I, uh, he says, I, I started digging in and reducing the number of backups manually inside the sparse image, but uh, he says, I realized that wasn't a good, a good idea. So what should I do? And honestly, this is one of the things with time machine where it, it just grows to however big it can fit on the drive. And then it starts pruning itself so unless you can somehow tell, and, and there are ways of telling the sparse bundle to, to stay a certain size, but time machine tends to override those at times. Um, really the best way to do it is, is what you alluded to at first, which is to partition the drive or somehow uh, limit artificially by the size of the space you give to time machine, how big it can get. But even with that, my experience is, when time machine gets to the point where you can't control it anymore, you just have to blow the sparse bundle away and start over. Um, and that that's what I do. And I, I have a very little reservation about doing that anymore. I have other backups going time machine is really handy when you got to go pull a quick file or whatever from something recent. And that's all I worry about. But, but you know, in terms of archives and all that, I, I just don't rely on time machine. It, it, um, this happens and it also gets corrupted at which point, you know, you, you either can spend days trying to repair the sparse bundle or just again, blow it away. So my default answer to time machine problems is yeah, blow away the bundle and start over because at this point you're not adding any backups and it's probably the more recent stuff that you care about as opposed to the stuff that's six months old. 
that that's my advice with that because that that's what happens, right? If you've got a problem, you're like, Oh, I'll wait till the weekend to do it. And then this weekend becomes three weekends from now. Then now you've gone a month without backing up and that's bad. Uh, or backing up the time machine. Hopefully you've got more than one backup. So that's my advice on this part of Bill's question, John, but, but I I'm curious because I know you and I think about these things differently, which is why it's a beautiful thing. What you think? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, my strategy. Um, so number, I, I, I think I agree with you is that I don't, it, I would first not trust time machine as my sole backup. Cause it's unreliable as, as you pointed out, I've had many times it report that the, the, you know, sparse bundle is corrupt and, yeah. and I've, I've given up trying to repair it. I know you can, and it may say that it's fixed, but I, a, after that point, I don't trust it. Right. Um, I love having both the ability on both the Drobo and the Synology to, as you said, uh, define, and you can actually change it. I think you can typically make, well, I think you can make it either smaller or larger, if you want to, um, of course, you can't make it smaller than the size <laughs> of sure. the bundle, but uh, you can dynamically change it to uh, to meet your needs. If you uh, on the Synology, you can dynamically change it on uh, the Drobo. Once you set the size of a time machine uh, backup in okay. uh, partition is the wrong word, but the size of a time machine backup share, uh, that is its limit. I don't I, I don't believe you can increase or decrease that at that point. Uh, okay. Actually, yeah, I yeah. think you're, yeah, I haven't because I, currently I'm not using it for Time Machine. I'm, I'm using the Synology, and yeah, the okay. Synology it's more like a administrative task. You're saying, oh, this user gets this amount of space. It's it's quotas, right? And so you're quotas. Just, yes. Yep. Yep. It's sort of a hack, yeah. but it works perfectly. Mm -hmm. Do yeah. you find that NAS oh, yeah. works worse with Time Machine than Time Capsule itself, or is it because I've had reliability issues even with the Time Capsule? Yeah, I was going to say you asked a question. You uh, Pete said, does NAS work? differently with time machine than time capsule time capsule is probably the dumbest NAS that you can buy, yeah. but it's still a NAS yeah. and, and no, it, that's the thing is, you know, I've, I've gone off on this rant before, but it drives me crazy that Apple has this network attached storage unit called the time capsule. And it's got some smarts in it. I'd say it's the dumbest NAS. It's a router, right? It's a killer router. Yeah. So it's, it's really not that dumb, but from its, from the network attached storage standpoint, it's got nothing in terms of features compared to what you get with other things. And it's only got one drive too. So it's, you know, limited there, but the real issue is they, they have the opportunity. There is a CPU in there that the time capsule is a computer sitting on your network. It obviously is a computer because it does all your routing, but it doesn't do anything smart for time machines specifically. And yet that's what the device is built for. What I don't understand is why a hundred percent of the work for time machine is on the client side. Yeah. Why isn't, you know, like crash plan, the server does a truckload of work, right? It, it is the thing that manages your quote unquote sparse bundles. They don't store them as sparse bundles, but let's, you know, call apples to apples, right? So they manage the, the backup archives. They prune through things. They clean them up. All that happens on the client side with crash plan is you bundle up data and you send it off and that's it. And, and, and if you might say, Oh, I want to delete that piece of, of, you know, data from my backup. Great. That you, you're telling the server that, and then the server touches your backup file with time machine. Your computer is the, the like directly touching the backup file across the network, a link that can die. 
it's so, and a link that is slow in terms of latency as compared to what could happen if it was a local thing. So it's just crazy. There is no benefit uh, to me in my mind of using a time capsule for time machine. In fact, it's probably one of the worst NAS drives to use because you can't do this per computer partitioning or anything like that. So I, I compressed my rant. Me. What's that? No, it baffles me because if you look in airport utility in the disks tab, it shows a section saying partitions. But all that I see, have ever seen there is the single disk that these are either attached to the uh, airport or in the time capsule. I mean, the word even suggests that they could do it if they put in just a little extra work. Right. Well, <laughs> but it, clearly this is one of those priority things here. Here's my advice. If you're going to use time machine, it really is best to use it with a direct attached drive. And, and I say that and I don't do it, but, the whole management over the network thing really slows things down. Like just before the show, I wanted to see if I had um, the right copy of something that we needed for the show. And John was going to zip it up, but I thought, Oh, well, let me look in time machine. Cause I used to have it and it takes forever for the archive to come up when it's trying to load it across the network and all of that stuff. It works so much better and so much differently when it's on a direct attached drive. And so that's really where the time machine is best is just hang a drive off your computer and do it that way. Do different backups to your NAS or, or do time machine to your NAS and just live with the, the problems like I do. So. Yeah, because I'll tell you what, if you're going to do a direct attached drive, I just use Super Duper or Carbon Copy Cloner. It's better, well, it's, you know. It's different, you, though. It's different, and you don't do it quite as often. But then when you get corrupted yeah. or, or a total failure of your internal hard drive, you can at least operate. Mm -hmm. and you, you can limp along on USB until you can get that fixed. It's true. It's true. Oh, but you could get a drive. Now, again, this is putting a single point of failure on the platter, yeah. but uh, you could get a drive and partition it and clone to one partition and time machine to sure. another. And then you've got your history and your clone all in one place. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, you know, actually, because, yeah, because the one the one drive I have right now, I think, is a terabyte. And I've only got 500 in my laptop. There you so go. I should do that. But, yeah. yeah. So, there, you know, that's what we do here. All right. So uh, that's that's first. The first part of Bill's question. The second part uh, was, okay, yep. Uh, I don't like your advice, but I, I understand it, you know? And he says, uh, so here's the thing. Um, I want to make sure I get the, uh, the, 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 okay. He says, uh, even though the time capsule does not show up as a mounted volume in disc utility, it is visible in the finder as a mounted disc. And when I mount it, it does not show up in disc utility. So how do I partition my time capsule in order to stop this problem from happening? And that's the issue. Your time capsule is not a disc connected to your Mac. So your Mac cannot partition it. The time capsule is, it has a disc inside it or a disc attached to it and can share that disc, but your Mac can't partition it. And here's the thing going back to, you know, the previous discussion is the time capsule doesn't let you partition it either. It doesn't have the smarts in there to do that. They have not built that logic in. So there just is no other way to, uh, to partition that, that drive, well, which is, yeah, I know it's how it well, works. There is, you can partition a drive in a time capsule. This see, this is why I wanted to bring this up. Cause I thought maybe you'd have a, an answer. Well, I think the answer could be you pop that baby open. Yeah. In which case you avoid the warranty. Sure. You pull the drive out of there. You partition it and put it back in. I think that may work. I don't, I will don't that work? That. Uh, will it, will it advertise to the both partitions then? Or will you just be limited to one? I've, 
I've seen reports of people attempting it, and I believe it will work, though it's it's certainly uh, un, uh, way unsupported. Sure. Well, yeah, of course. Of course. Huh. But well, that's out, cool. Yeah, the device itself can't do it. But I think if, if, uh, if, if you're not afraid of pulling the drive out of there and partitioning it uh, when it's directly connected and then put it back in there, I think you could do that. Interesting. I'd like to learn more about that. That because that that would I mean it's like you said it's very much a hack. Break your time capsule. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a lot of them are out of warranty now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Interesting. 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 And uh, to answer a question in the chat room, yes, you can use uh, Crash Plan with your disk station. There is a way to install the Crash Plan client, if you will, on on your disk station, and then it can act. As all computers running CrashPlan can, it can act either as a client taking its own data and saving it off to, you know, CrashPlan server if you have a CrashPlan account, or it can act as a CrashPlan repository, meaning you can back up your computers to it using CrashPlan software. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that uh, for Synology. There actually is a way to do the same thing on uh, the Drobo 5N, and I think think the way to do that is through drobo ports but um but i'll link to a, a katie floyd article that that talks about it because um because it's probably easier so um so there you go yeah but the uh, like i said the 5n is is coming around it's a it's they're they they know what they need to do with it and they're doing they're doing good stuff so Okay, uh, I do want to talk about our second sponsor, though. And our second sponsor is, as I said, E3 Software. DirectMailMac.com is where you want to go. If you've ever needed to send out email to more than, say, about 20 people, maybe a mailing list. Now, maybe it's something big for your company, right? Where you've got, you know, hundreds, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people on a mailing list. Or... If it's just something personally, like, you're, you know, you're having a uh, you're organizing something for the, the school, you're organizing, you know, even a, a large dinner party where you might have 50 or 60 people and you just want to send out a bunch of email. Most mail servers will not let you send to more than about 20 recipients at a time. Um, and, you know, and then you're BCCing things and that winds up getting caught by spam filters and all that stuff. Well. Here's the thing. That's what direct mail Mac does. These guys, they've, and they've been doing this a long time. Uh, they have a piece of software. It's a Mac piece of software. You go in there and you can design your email. You can do all kinds of great things. I mean, it's really pretty. Uh, you can, you can use templates. Um, you just, you go in and, and you, you build whatever beautiful email you want to build. And then you can go and, uh, and, and send that email, right? And that's where it starts getting really interesting because you can send it and you send through their servers. So they will manage all of that for you. And, uh, and, and it, 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 they take care of it. If you have a, a mailing list like you've created in FileMaker, they'll pull that in, right? If you, you want to pull your address book in, they'll pull that in. And, uh, and you can you know, obviously segment things. It'll track opens and... Uh, it unsubscribes if you have you know people on your list that you have unsubscribed how many bounces how many if there's any spam complaints which hopefully there's none they spend a lot of time making sure their servers are not 
going to uh, wind up on spam lists. It also means that you can't send out like, you know, terrible spam through their stuff, uh, which you shouldn't anyway, uh, because they won't let you, which is good. Uh, but it means that they don't let other customers do that either. So your server, your mail's coming from a, a well-respected server, the E3 delivery service. But these emails just look great. And it, it's so easy. Uh, you got to check it out. Directmailmac.com. And you can download a copy and, and start playing around with it. Their pricing's pretty cool. You, you know, you, you pay for the number of emails that you want to send. And it, it depends on how you're doing it. If, you, if you're sending stuff regularly, you buy by subscribers. And then you can send as many as you want every month, right? Or if you're just doing a la carte stuff, you buy credits and you send, you know, number of emails and you can send them whenever you want. You don't have to use them up in a month. Um, or if you have your own mail server, you can go that route too. But, uh, but that's probably a little geekier than any of us want to get. Why would you want to bother managing your own mail server? I've done it. Trust me. Uh, it's bad. I've, I've gotten out of that business. It's managing a mail server is not something you want to do as like an ancillary thing. So let these guys handle it and use their app to design your killer emails. So check it all out. Directmailmac.com. I really encourage you to play around with this. It's, this is one of those things you just download the software. It's not going to cost you anything, play around with it. And then you'll come up with ideas Be like, wait a minute, I could use this to do, you know, uh, the, the graduation thing that I need to coordinate for school next year or, and, you know, any it, you'll have all kinds of ideas that that's the best part about software like this. And it's really software plus a service, of course. But uh, but check it out. Just play with it and you'll come up with ideas. And tell us your ideas, you know, tweet them to us, Mac Geek Gab, or, or send them to us. Feedback at Mac Geek Gab dot com. Mac Geek Gab. Feedback. Feedback. That's right. <laughs> feedback at Mac Geek Gab. Thanks, Pete. Not feedback. <laughs> No, not feedback. So check it out, directmailmac.com and uh and tell them uh tell them we sent you. They'll uh they'll appreciate that. I know. I know they'll appreciate it. So All right, John. You know, it's um it's summertime, John. You still with me, John? I didn't lose you, right? Yeah, it is All right, good. Yeah. yeah, yesterday I believe was the uh is it the equin uh, what are equinox is that it? Yeah. Get those straight. Yeah. It's summertime, which means we're all going to, well, those of us, you know, that live in uh, colder climates, uh, but summertime in the Northern hemisphere. Right. So, uh, but that doesn't include all of our listeners, but it's summertime for me. It's summertime for you. It's summertime for Pete. And this means that spend more time outside, maybe go on, uh, on trips. Uh, and, you know, I, I am someone, we are crazy about music in our house, John. And uh, it always is kind of a drag when we travel. Because, you know, we have we're, we're Sonos people at the house now, as I've mentioned many, many times on the show. And uh, it's great. You know, it, the house just works great like that. But Sonos is not portable. Uh, it's in fact, it's a real pain in the butt to travel with. So, uh, you know, when we travel, I need something that I can play music with. Certainly, I have a good headphones, but I like to music is a good thing to have social. Right. It's nice to have stuff outside, even if I'm at home. But it's also nice in a hotel room or whatever. So. I've got a couple of things that I've been checking out, John, and uh, a couple of things by JBL. They, they, there's a lot of portable speakers out there from, from a lot of vendors and most of them sound like crap. They just don't care about the sound and it's a shame, but it's how it works. Um, 
because they can sell them and people buy them. And so they don't care. They're happy about that. Uh, JBL cares about the sound. And, uh, and I've tested a couple of things from them lately, John, that, that really kind of blew me away. And as I was kind of packing, we're going up to the lake, um, for a couple of days this week. And as I was packing, I started pulling out some of the new stuff, the JBL pulse speaker. This thing is pretty cool. It's portable battery powered Bluetooth speaker. And, uh, wicked lightweight. What's that? Wicked lightweight. It is wicked lightweight. Yeah. And, but what's cool about it is, um, yeah, you hook it up to your Mac or sorry, you could hook up, hook it up to your Mac actually with Bluetooth or it's got a line in. Right. But you know, I hooked it up to my iPhone and, uh, and, and this thing, it, it's like a, a tube, right. And you can put it up on its end or, um, you know, on its side, it actually sounds pretty good. I, I really like it on its side. Um, Pete and I were kind of getting a nice stereo field here while we were messing with it beforehand. But, uh, the cool part about it, and it, this really is cooler than I thought it would be. It seemed like gimmicky to me, but then I found I really liked it is it's got LEDs all around the side of the tube. And they change and pulse, hence the name, with the music. And you can set all different. I mean, they're all different colors and, and you can set it to be in in, you know, kind of changing color mode. Or if you like, say, you know, like a purple motif, you hit the little there's a little purple button on the top. There's I don't know how many buttons here. Two, like about four, six, eight. Yeah, there's actually uh, 16 buttons yeah. for different colors. 17 if you include the all colors kind of thing. And uh and it pulses to the music, which is just kind of cool to have going. So uh, the pulse is uh, they, it lists from JBL for 200 bucks, but uh, uh, certainly in the cool stuff found category. And I found it on Amazon for about 130. So, uh, so check it out. If you're looking for something that's lightweight, the battery lasts, I think it lasts like, I, I want to say 10 hours. Uh, uh, I think it's at five on the side. Five. Okay. I'm, I'm getting that. With the lights the on and uh, with the, yeah, right. Yeah. And I'd right. say it's about the size of a medium soda from your average fast food. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's about the size of your your uh, your portable Dunkin' Donuts coffee cup yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's really you know, and you just and that's but, the but cool. It weighs less. <laughs> it weighs less, right? And it's kind of rubberized, so you you know you'll feel like you can throw it around. I don't recommend throwing it around, but uh, but you football could at the beach. It is kind of like a football. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the Bluetooth audio works well. So that's that's one thing from JBL. The other thing. Hey, I'll vamp. Will you go down to the box and get it? There you go. Yeah, there we are. Thanks, Pete. So is um, the JBL Voyager. So this is kind of a cool thing. If you're going to be, um, and you could use this at home, right? This actually would work great. You put it in your kitchen and it's, it, it, it's, uh, you plug it in, right? It, it needs power, sort of bear with me on this. And uh, it, it's fantastic. It's got a subwoofer in it, right? It's this cool kind of, conical shaped thing and uh it's also got a microphone in it so it can work as a speakerphone you sit this thing in your kitchen or your office right and it's bluetooth or you can wire into it but the bluetooth is where it gets really interesting and uh the subwoofer is it, it the, the speaker face is round right and so the tweeter and everything the tweeter and the mid-range stuff is in the middle and then the subwoofer is around the edge and it's really hard to describe but you just got to go to the website and see it you can take the middle out and it becomes this little portable music platter uh, that you can put on a table, take outside with you and, uh, and your music just keeps going. Now it's tough to talk about the sound quality of this without comparing it to itself with the subwoofer. It sounds awesome without the subwoofer. It 
sounds less awesome, but it doesn't sound bad, but it's really hard to a B it when you've got the subwoofer right there. But, uh, but it's pretty cool. So it's again, one of those things that's great for, you know, if you want to have a speaker in the kitchen and then you want to go out and hang out in the yard or on the deck, you just grab this thing and, uh, and off you go. So those are, those are two things that, uh, two speakers that I found for, for traveling and portable and summer outdoor stuff. And the Voyager, I think is about 250 bucks. And I couldn't find a discount on that yet, but maybe as they, as they get more into the channel, um, they're, they'll, they'll, they'll come around. Oh, and what are the other features? Oh, hang on, Pete. Sorry. I muted you while you were oh, walking well, I was around. I getting that for you. Yeah. The, the other two things that, uh, uh, the pulse does not have a microphone, so it can't make phone calls, That's but right. the Voyager, you can, those were the other features we were talking about pre-show. It, uh, so the the Voyager will do uh, telephone calls with your Bluetooth into your phone and yeah and uh, I got one, I got one other thing that that I've been thinking about while I'm traveling here, Pete. You know, I I have boxes of stuff that like pile up as cool stuff found. I know you do too, John, right? Yeah. And and, yes. uh, and and so I have um, one of our our listeners, Eddie, um, uh, and I'll link to his his guitar studio, Black. Uh, Black lung guitars, I think is what he calls them. Uh, in fact, I'm sure that's what he calls them. He made me a cigar box guitar and it's a four string guitar. It's got a pickup in it and um, it's, it's a beautiful instrument. I'll, I, I've posted a picture of it on, on Twitter. I'll post another one, but, um, but you know, it, it, and it sounds cool even without being plugged in. And it, it he, he made me a, a bottleneck slide with it that he, he rounded out. It's really cool. Uh, and I wanted to bring it up to the lake. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I don't have an amp up there. So how do I plug this thing in? Well, um, Griffin has this thing called the Guitar Connect Pro that lets you take a guitar. It's portable. It's a tiny little thing. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the size of my finger. And, uh, and it goes from the guitar. You plug a guitar cable in and then you go, it's got a USB port on it and it comes with lightning connectors and everything. So you plug it into your iPhone, you can run an app on your iPhone that will make the guitar sound good and then play it through any one of these other speakers or your headphones or whatever. So I can bring it up the lake and, and show, uh, show the family this guitar that, uh, that Eddie made. So that's the Griffin Guitar Connect Pro. So that's, uh, that's the other thing. I think that's about 85 bucks and you might be able to find that cheaper. In fact, I think you can find it a lot cheaper. I think you can find it for less than 50. Just make sure you get the one that uh, will work with the lightning connector. Cause that's, um, that's important. So, so there you go. Sweet. That's what I got. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was rocking some tunes uh, when I had everybody over for father's day. Yeah. 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 My, my setup is, uh, is simple. That's simple so, uh, is good. Well, uh, I use two, two uh, pieces of technology. So one is a, uh, the iTunes server on my Synology. Okay. Yep. And then AirPlay. So I have a uh, downstairs, I have the uh, airport express and that is connected to uh, my audio engine. A fives. Oh, and right. Then I, and then I did it from, you know, and I had my, my Mac running and uh, you know, I was able to create Hitler. I don't even think I did a playlist, but, but I would just, you know, select an artist and just play through their stuff. And, uh, and now yeah. were you managing that? from your iphone because you can do that right you can manage your mac no no i was i was uh, no i had the uh the macbook uh managing that no i hadn't tried it from the iphone i should try it from the iphone you totally can do it yeah it it's you know when um or the ipad i guess right? or the ipad right yeah you can totally manage what music your mac is playing from your other devices um if you want that way it's it's super easy it's you know i mean it it's pretty close to creating your own 
you know, Sonos ish setup with, with just what you've got, which, which is great. Right. You know, I hadn't even thought of that. So, so through what the music app on the, on iOS, I believe, or, or would it be, or no, I'd use the uh, Synology app, right? No, 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 no. Oh, you could I, totally. You could use the DS audio app and have it stream via airplay directly from your Synology right. to right. your, yeah. So that's one way to do it, but you can also do it the, the way you were talking about by controlling what songs your Mac is playing, right? It, there's, um, mm-hmm. what's the app that does that? Uh, is it iTunes remote? Yeah. I think it's the remote app. Yeah. Just Apple's remote, not the keynote remote app, but just right, Apple's right, remote right. app. And you choose your thing and it connects and then you see your playlist and you tell it to play and whatever it's playing out to it is what it plays out to. It's pretty cool. I mean, it, you, you essentially could have gotten the playlist started on your Mac and then just linked up to it with your iPhone and changed things on the fly, which is pretty cool. You know, you know what I'm saying? I know. John? Yeah, I know brother. All right. You know what? Let's, um, let's get geeky, John. Let's, we, we, let's talk about bill. I think we've got, it's not the same bill we just finished talking about, but, uh, but a different bill and you yeah. helped him through some pretty geeky stuff here. And, uh, and, and it leads to a good question, which I'd like to get your input on. All so, right, um, sweet. So here's what Bill is trying to do. So, uh, so Bill says, I want to set up a VPN server. And uh, he followed uh, directions that are, were provided by our, our good friends over at NoSillaCast. Sure. Uh, so, so she has posted on her site a tutorial uh, about how you could set up a VPN server. And uh, it uses... Um, this tool or this, uh, I'll call it a package manager, um, which is called Mac ports. Yeah. Uh, so there's two parts to this here. So, uh, one, of course you got to, you know, download and install Mac ports, uh, which is pretty straightforward. Uh, they have installers that are specific to each uh, version of the OS. And then within the tutorial, Dave, and this is the part where Bill needed some help. He's like, well, it has some instructions and, uh, things to type in the terminal. And uh, he's like, here's what happens. So the first thing it tells you to type is source space tilde slash dot profile. Um, source is basically a, a command that parses whatever file you feed it. Okay. Um, to dig a little deeper, what happens is when you install um, Mac ports, it actually modifies that file. So then Mac ports can be found as far as I can tell. But here's what happened. When he tried to do that, he typed source, you know, typed what I just said, and he got an error back saying no such file or directory. Of course, when he tried to type the following thing, which is sudo space port space dash V space self update, it said command not found. Because it didn't. So it just to, to give a, the a first command wasn't executed. Right. It couldn't find the port command. Right. Because that's. Basically, what the first command is doing is telling you, hey, here's where to find this new stuff. No, that's it. That You, you got it. I just wanted to interject and kind of give a, a meta description of, you know, the idea is Mac ports installs all this stuff. And then you it, it, it tells your computer how to find it. But unless you reboot, you need to kind of jumpstart that process and say, do this one thing that you would have done on reboot anyway and uh or on re on, on on a new terminal session you could actually just close the terminal window and open it and it would it would source that profile file for you but um if to do it manually and make it so that you can see your computer can see all this new stuff that mac ports installed so 
Right. right. So putting on my developer hat um, and my terminal hat, I wear many hats. <laughs> yeah. It gets warm though. <laughs> but not a bad hat. Like bad hat Harry. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so I'm like, okay, well, you know, so first off what it's saying is, well, there's no file called dot profile. I'm like, okay. So the thing is, there must be a file that will do what he wants. It's just not called dot profile. So in my case, Dave, I, I went to my terminal and I did a LS space dash a once in my home directory. And I looked at all the files you want to do dash a because when this is saying, Oh, I, uh, I want to execute this thing called dot profile. What that is, is, uh, from the command line, normally if you do just a regular directory, any file with a dot as the first character will not be listed because that means it's uh, hidden. Not very well, but <laughs> so you got to do ls space dash a. So I did that in my home directory and I didn't have a profile, a dot profile file either. But you know what I did have is I had a file that uh, was, was a uh, strikingly similar and it was called, um, where is it in mine here? It was called dot bash underscore profile. I'm like, Hmm. All right, well, let me try that. And I tried that, and that worked great. So I got back to Bill, and I said, well, give this a shot. And he said, well, that didn't work either. I'm like, oh, no. But I'm, and uh, then he took it upon himself to send me a listing of what he sees when he does an LS space dash A in his home directory. And no, there was no dot profile. And no, there was no dot bash underscore profile. But um, and this is a, a little bit of this is based on my uh, knowledge of uh, what we're going to call shells. What I did see, Dave, is a file called .tcshrc. Yep. And I'm like, you know what? Bet you that's it. Why don't you give that a try? And he gave that a try, and that was it. Now you may be asking yourself, what's going on here? Why are all, why are there all these different Files that are basically doing the same thing. They're storing environment variables uh, that, that the uh, OS can use. Why are there all these different ones? And it really depends on what shell you are running. And what is a shell? And I would say in a nutshell, <laughs> a shell is the program when you go to the terminal that processes what you type into the terminal. Yeah, not everybody has the same one. It, it, if you've updated your Mac... Yeah, and that's the problem here is that depending on the shell that you're running, the file that contains important information could be called dot profile. It could be called, in my case, dot bash underscore profile. Or in his case, he's running an even different shell called a TCSH. Right. And I guess the question here is and maybe you what controls what shell you are running like in my case dave i'm i'm uh, both on my maverick system and on my system running the prior os i'm running bash on both of them i don't know if that's by design or if, if it I is bash it at some point bash is the default i um i got really used to t shell tcsh years and years and years maybe decades is more an appropriate answer um year ago on on various unix machines that i was working on and so on most of my Macs, I have changed the shell to TCSH, but I think on I think on my Air, I'm running um, I'm running Bash because I just left it as the default. And there's some there's some minor differences between them. There used to be much 
bigger differences between them, but they've all sort of inherited the, the good stuff from each other. And um, I'm sure we could, as, as Ernie in the chat room is saying, we could start a great flame war about what is the, uh, what is the right shell to use, but um, you can change your shell at any time uh, in Unix with the C H S H command. You need to know what other shell you want to run and you can test other shells, right? Um, without, changing your shell so i i like t-shells so if john if you wanted to try t-shell i'm pretty sure um you could just go to the terminal and type t-c-s-h and now you're running t-shell just like i can type bash and it will run the bash shell and if you want to know where they live so that if you change your shell to them you can point to that um, a great Unix command for finding, usually finding things, is which, W-H-I-C-H. So if you type which space T-C-S-H, you will see that it's in slash bin slash T-C-S-H. So that's where that file lives. And you could run it that way, too. You could write, you know, you could type slash bin slash T-C-S-H. And then to get out of that shell, you know, after you've tested out uh, T-C-S-H or Bash and you decide which one you like, um, log out will log you out of the shell um, and... Uh, or sorry, exit. Uh, see, that's and that's some of the differences between shells. Uh, exit will get you out, but really, the 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 quick way to get out, and this is awesome. Uh, even if you're not messing around with different shells, if you're just messing around in the terminal and you want out, Control D. It's holding down the Control key, not Option, not Command. Control D will log you out of a shell all the time, and that is how I get around in the terminal um, on all my machines. Is you know, I do whatever I need to do. I Control D, and then I have the terminal set to close the window when the shell logs out. Uh, some people like it the other way, but uh, there's a, there's a little command you can, you can set. I'm trying to figure out where the preference is and I don't, I honestly, I don't see it. It's probably in setting somewhere. Uh, but anyway, right. Um, so yeah, cool. And as you suggest the, the one thing, so yeah, we could have a flame war over this, but I would say that, I would no. I would say that most. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, I would run Bash. I think Bash is probably the one that Apple suggests you run. So I think you should well, be running. They that they one. do now. Um, Alan uh, Alan Shutko in the in the in the Mac Geekab chat room here is telling me that uh, OS ten from ten point zero up through ten point two, the default shell was TCSH. And then after that, in 10.3, it became Bash. So uh, if you have a an installation, not even the same machine, but if you've migration assistanted or upgraded yourself over time from something where you started fresh with 10.0, that alone could be the reason that you're running T-Shell. Uh, you know what? Actually, I, I was incorrect. I'm looking at my mountain line machine, and it's running TCSH. Mm -hmm. Because you've updated over and over and over. So, right, right. Yeah, it's that, not a fresh install where the other machine is a fresh clearly install. Clearly not a fresh install. If, if it yeah. Was, yeah. <laughs> now, and there are all sorts of different shells. So how can you find out about them? Well, one, as, as you hinted at, Dave, but if you go to, if you do CD space slash bin, that's where all the shells live. A lot and of things probably, live there, though, to right, be fair. Well, at least on this system here, and you could probably tell which ones are shells. Um, there's a, a CSH. So typically it ends in SH. That's true. Now there's, so there's CSH, yeah. KSH, uh, ZSH, just SH if you want to get minimalist. And if you want to learn more about them, you can bring up the manual page 
for many of them by typing man space and then the name of the shell and it'll tell you all about it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. SH is, is the, uh, I, I may be wrong about this, but I, I'm pretty sure SH is the first shell. Um, but see, but, but here's shell. Yeah. But see, the thing <laughs> is, I'm not convinced that running SH actually runs SH. Does it, it might run bash, which is the born again shell. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about exactly what flavors of, of any given shell are out there. Uh, and a lot of times SH is, is mapped to something more featured, more full featured, uh, on a, on any given Unix. So, but I, I don't know. It, it might not be, you can learn about them, uh, by doing man, M A N for a user manual man space, and then whatever shell you want. So man space, you know, TCSH will bring up the C shell with, you know, uh, man thing and it'll give you a little description all that good stuff so it's fun stuff it's good terminal stuff i, I love it i i live in the terminal all day i i am um, i i think in the terminal i love it it's fun but sometimes the fun needs to come to an end john oh my gosh always leave them wanting about, more that's right i was all, i was all excited about tackling some of these other ones here yeah well, we'll get geeky we'll, we'll get there we'll tackle them later but we will tackle them we will we will ta- tackle. That's kind of violent. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll gently caress them. Now nah, we'll tackle them. <laughs> These geeky things need, they need some, they need, you, you gotta, Discipline. you gotta man up and get in there and deal with it. That's what you gotta do. Pull woman up. You can right. do that too. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, you know, well, we already said it, Dave. So I'm not going to. One last time, people. John. I, I'm not going to remind people that if you want to write us or email us, that you should send your questions, comments, concerns, tips, cookies to feedback at MacGeekab.com. Or if you're a premium supporter and you can learn about that at MacGeekab.com, uh, those of you that contribute uh, actively, even semi-actively there, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat loose about this, but we do appreciate your support. Uh, the premium program was built with your desires in mind. Um, you, uh, you folks humble us with not only you sending in your questions and your tips and simply listening but with your direct support uh, of our premium program which puts money into the kitty for uh, things like checking out cool stuff and going to conventions and also paying our mortgages so it's you know it, it's all encompassing and we do appreciate your support the way we give back most directly is by giving you the premium at me macgeekab.com email address and we do prioritize that and uh, we do try to answer everything that comes in and most of the time we succeed but uh, but premium definitely gets uh, you folks help us keep the lights on and so we you know uh, we, we try to return that favor so uh, so thank you terrible, I just had this terrible image of stuffing a cat full of money okay. you said stuffing the kitty oh yeah that's right yeah sorry uh, yeah yeah yeah, so that's premium at MacGeekab.com. And please do check that out if you're interested. And if you if you can't or you're not interested, that's okay. Please do keep listening. Uh, obviously, you know, it, we're, the, our arms are open uh, for everyone here. 206-666-GEEK is the phone number you can call to leave us voicemails. John, that number is? The geek Four, is? 4,335. That's right. And that's how we rock it here. I want to make sure we thank Michael Johnston the uh, host of the iOS show, an awesome podcast with Jeff Gamut and Matt, uh, Adam Christensen most of the time about uh, all things iOS. He converts the show, this show, 
for us to AAC and adds all those cool chapters and everything, which I know you folks love. Also, getappler.com is his website. Cashfly hosting, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com is the place that provides all the bandwidth to uh, get the show from us to you. Podcast Marketplace, as we mentioned, includes directmailmac.com from E3 Software, lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com slash M-G-G, squarespace.com slash M-G-G, gazelle.com, smilesoftware.com, and the great folks at barebones.com. Thanks to all our sponsors. Thanks to all of you. Pete, thanks to you. John, thanks to you. Pete, do you have anything to add? It's nice to have you here. I, I thought maybe you brought some lasting wisdom. I, I do, actually. I just want to tell everybody out there, when they're out there having fun this weekend, enjoying the summer weather, or winter weather if you're down under, be careful and don't get caught. Don't get caught.